Well, if you are joining us for the first time, you're walking in on a sermon series that is changing the game for a lot of people. We're walking through the Old Testament book of Daniel, but we're not just walking through Daniel as a historical study. We're framing it through the eyes of Daniel and his friends' formation as they grew up. And what's cool is we're watching the word of God move in supernatural ways as we just read it and talk about it and focus on it. I want you to know that what happens in this space is not powerful because of the way I deliver it or whoever on this stage delivers it. What's happening in this space is powerful because the Holy Spirit loves to illuminate Jesus through the word of God. So it's so simple. There's no tricks. There's no gimmicks. All we're doing is reading stories from the word of God, applying them to our lives, and then we're watching in real time God change people's lives. God is doing in our day what he promises to do through the scriptures, and there's nothing magical about it. There's no delivery that's manipulative. It is just straight. Focus on the truth of God's word, apply it to your life, and watch the Holy Spirit work. And what's crazy about that is that the reason why Daniel and his friends were able to hold on to their faith in exile in Babylon was because their parents were a part of a generation that returned to the word of God. King Josiah reigned when Daniel's parents were around, and King Josiah led a nationwide revival to destroy idols and return to the book of the law. We read this story in week one, but I want to remind everybody, this is the lens that we're viewing everything in this series through. King Josiah is reigning, and he's trying to destroy idols, and he's trying to change things. And all of a sudden, the priest at the time, Hilkiah, Jeremiah's dad, finds the book of the law. And they read it, and they go, this is why everything's falling apart. We've lost the truth of God's word. We've lost our commitment to this book, and we've got to return to him. Now, they're only one generation away from still being exiled. But because of the foundation of the word of God that was placed in the people of Judah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were formed from within by the word of God. So then when they're tempted to conform to the culture of Babylon, they don't conform to the culture. They're transformed by the word from within. And the reason why I got to frame it that way is because if you're going to walk with Jesus faithfully in 2022, you need more than surface level conversion to Christianity. You need deep level discipleship and formation by the word of God. Listen, you can have emotional moments with God and they're powerful and you can grow up in church and know all the facts from Sunday school. But if you're not letting the word of God transform you from within so you don't conform to the world around you, but you're being transformed by the word within you, you're just not going to make it on this journey. And at ACC, the last thing we want to do with this limited amount of time that we're given to steward what God has placed into our hands, the last thing we want to do is build a movement of attenders. We want people going deeper in the word of God and watching it transform their lives. And so every story so far in Daniel 1, Daniel 2, Daniel 3, it's been powerful. And now we move on to a new story, but I want to give it a title before we get there. The title of this sermon is called The Glory. The Glory. Can you look at somebody next to you and tell them these are your glory days? These are your (laughs) glory days. Watching some of you not even react to what I just said. You're like, zero chance. Now that is a reference to a song by one of my favorite artists of all time, Bruce Springsteen, the boss. Some of you, I just gained a lot of credibility with you because he knows who Bruce Springsteen is. I was raised on cassette tapes of Born to Run, okay? (laughs) My dad is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I grew up listening to Bruce Springsteen all the time, and my favorite song of all of his was always Glory Days. Just love the way that song builds. The music was just different back then for all the kids who are listening right now. It is, uh, as I was doing this message, I could not get that song out of my head. And if you know it, it's probably in your head right now. But I want to talk about the glory of God 
And I want to lay two foundational truths that we say a lot at ACC, but for those who are new and those who are unaware, these are important and worth repeating. Number one, from an overarching sense, the glory of God is the reason why God created everything, the reason why you are alive today, and the end and ultimate, I would say the chief end of the story of humanity is to glorify God forever. It's not me making that up. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so when we talk about the glory of God, we're not talking about an aspect of who God is. We're talking about the central motivating mission of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is not just a beautiful sunset. It's not just moments of giving God credit for things that he's done. The glory of God is the grandeur, the honor and praise and exalting of who God is above everything else you could do with your life. This is what the story of humanity has been all about. This is what it will always be about. That's why the headline of our church is Jesus wins. Because the ultimate story of any story ever told is that Jesus reigns. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess what? To the glory of God the Father. God exists for God's own glory in a grand sense. But watch this. The purpose becomes individualized when you realize that God has linked the glory of God with the satisfaction of man. So mankind finds their fullest satisfaction, their fullest happiness, their fullest joy when God is glorified through their lives. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's a dual relationship. So when God gets the glory, when God has the highest place in your life, that is when your soul is the most satisfied. So in a grand sense, why do we exist? For the glory of God. On an individual sense, everything you're looking for in this life, that longing within you to find satisfaction, that longing for meaning, that longing for connection, that longing to achieve, that longing to live on purpose, that longing for freedom, all of those longings find their ultimate fulfillment when you get out of God's way and put Jesus on his rightful place, the throne of your heart. Now watch. If those two huge foundations are true, and what the Bible teaches is that you have a very real enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, hates the glory of God, wants to take from your story, and wants to destroy your soul. What do you think his ultimate mission is for your life? Just think about it. Because I think for some of us, there's this mistaken notion that the enemy's mission for our lives is this huge, deep slide into moral decay. It's this huge denial of Jesus that maybe his mission is just that long-term, I won't even end up being a Christian and I'll just totally ruin my life and I'll cheat on my spouse or I'll walk away from everything that I once held dear. And we think that it's like this grand big plan to make us fall. But what if the enemy's plan to destroy us is a lot more subtle and it's more about you just in a really, really small way of compromises living your life for yourself? Like if he can get you to live for you, he has stolen from and robbed the purpose for which you exist. So it's not like your life competition is between the glory of God and the glory of Satan. No, 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 no. It's between the glory of God and the glory of self. And if we're not careful today, we won't even notice that the biggest battle happening right now is a battle to make your life about you, to make your life about your comfort, your stuff, your worries, everything that you've been placed in authority over and not notice that the ultimate freedom in life is found in letting it go. The Bible teaches that self-fulfillment is found through self-denial. So many paradoxes about following Jesus, but you won't truly get filled until you've emptied your life out. And so here's the crazy thing. We're inviting you into a lifetime of giving up what you think you want 
for what you really want. We're not pushing an agenda on you that's trying to get you to do something that will leave you empty and wanting. Following Jesus is actually the ultimate fulfillment of every desire that exists within your soul. So when we talk about living for the glory of God, we're not talking about living miserable, giving up what we want. We're talking about giving up what our sinful senses tell us we want right now for what we want most, which is when Jesus is exalted through my mouth, through my awareness of who he is, all of a sudden everything about my life starts making sense. All of a sudden I have peace, I have freedom, I have purpose. Miles, I thought we were talking about Daniel. We are. What we're about to read in Daniel 4 is a glory war. It's a glory war between the king of earth, Nebuchadnezzar, and the king of heaven, the most high God. And the collision that's going to happen in Daniel 4 is very similar to the collision that happens in our lives when we're living for our story and then God invades our story and goes, who is this all about? So what could happen here? It might be a little bit violent. God might come through and wreck some things, but I actually believe all of this is done in love because God is trying to open your eyes to the life that is truly life. God doesn't want you to waste your life on yourself. God doesn't want you spending your days anxious and miserable and running for things that ultimately won't satisfy. He wants to give you the real thing. And the reason why God exists for God and God exists for his glory, it's not just because he's always just full of himself and wants to talk about himself. No, it's because he knows he's the best thing. He's the best one for your life. So let's read about this war for glory and let's apply it to our lives. Did you bring your Bible to the 9 a.m. service? Did you bring your Bible in Birmingham and Lake Martin? Hold it up, hold it up. Hold them up high, keep them up. Turn with me to Daniel 4. Turn, I couldn't think of anything. Turn with me to Daniel 4. I was like, God, I trust you for what I'm about to say. He was like, tell him to open to the page and read. All right, I'll stop. <laughs> Daniel 4. Okay, Daniel 4 is kind of weird because we're about to read Nebuchadnezzar's writing. Daniel took a story that Nebuchadnezzar wrote 20 years after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, and he compiled it with his own narration of the event. So what you have is Nebuchadnezzar talking at the beginning, Daniel talking in the middle, and then Nebuchadnezzar talking at the end. I know what you're thinking. If you've been here, you're like, no, another one, another one, another one. No, it's not a chiasm. Sorry. I know you're excited. Actually, we think Four and five are a chiasm. Gage is going to settle that next week. And, and maybe there is a midpoint between these two stories. But Daniel 4 is not chiastic in its structure. If you're like, what in the world are they talking about? You need to listen to the last couple of sermons. But Daniel 4 is going to have Nebuchadnezzar telling a story, Daniel jumping in in the middle and narrating some of it, and then Nebuchadnezzar finishing it. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Amen. King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. You might just want to bracket off that phrase in your Bible, contented and prosperous, because it's in those seasons that Scripture teaches us you're in the most dangerous place spiritually, of becoming apathetic, of becoming numb, of becoming disconnected from what God is doing in the world. Contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. 
It's also interesting to me that even when we're in the most prosperous seasons and the most secure seasons, we can become the most anxious. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. So once again, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. You remember in Daniel 2, he had a dream. This time, he doesn't want the dream told to him. He just wants it interpreted. For some reason, he calls in all of his wise men, not including Daniel. None of them can interpret it. And he's like, no, we got to get Daniel back in here. It worked last time. It'll work again. And watch this. He says, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. What's interesting about that phrase is that is the exact same phrase that Pharaoh uses to describe Joseph. It's almost like Daniel is, is, is writing this into the story to remind us, just like God preserved a remnant, even when the people of God were enslaved in Egypt, God is preserving a remnant in Babylon. The spirit of the holy gods is in him. And then he says, I had a dream, interpret it for me. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of Daniel 4, but we will read the details of this dream as we get to the interpretation. Let me just tell you what the dream was. Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw a tree. It was like wide and feeding to the ends of the earth, like plenty of food for everything. Then boom, it was all of a sudden cut down and it turned into a stump. And I don't know what that means, but then a voice started talking and the voice said, he will be drenched with the dew of heaven. He will, he will crawl around like an animal and be removed from his place. And, and he hears a voice that goes along with the picture of a dream. But then he gets to the purpose in verse 17. I want you to skip down there. The verse, in verse 17, this is the end of the dream. It says, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This phrase will be repeated three times in Daniel 4. It is the purpose of the dream and the purpose of everything that Daniel is trying to teach us. That the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. So when Daniel hears this dream, he immediately knows what it means. It's negative for King Nebuchadnezzar, which is bad news for Daniel, because you don't want to interpret the dream and tell the king something he doesn't want to hear. And so Daniel kind of hesitates, and Nebuchadnezzar in the next couple of verses is like, no, just tell me. Tell me what the dream was. You're not going to get punished. I just want to know what it really means. And finally, Daniel gives it to him in verse 24. Skip over to verse 24, and you'll hear some of the details of the dream. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel says, you're the tree feeding all the earth as a civilization. You're about to be cut down. 
and God is going to remove you to literally in your mind believe that you are an animal and he's doing this so that you will, will actually admit out loud that the most high is the one who is sovereign, not you. You've become prideful, you've become arrogant and God is about to bring you low. But then Daniel doesn't just interpret the dream, he gives advice and he wasn't invited to give advice. This is a bold move by Daniel. He goes, if I may, renounce your sins. Nebuchadnezzar was especially wicked and evil to the poor because when they would go in and take over a civilization, they would immediately enslave the poor to build up their kingdom. And so Daniel goes, hey, it may be that this doesn't happen if you turn from your ways. Y'all look up here and don't miss this because I try to remind us anytime prophecy is present in the Old Testament. The purpose of prophecy is not to tell you the future like a fortune teller. The purpose of prophecy is to warn you where the future is going to land if you stay on the road that you're on right now. It's not to guarantee this is what is going to happen. So you think about that with Jonah. When Jonah prophesied to the Ninevites and he said, hey, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned, what did they do? They repented. And what did God do? He relented. So in 40 days when Nineveh was not destroyed, does that make Jonah a false prophet? No. The prophecy achieved its purpose. This is supposed to wake you up to go, hey, if you keep going on the road you're going on right now, it ends in a place that you don't want to go. Renounce your sins. Turn to God. I can't tell you how many times in the Old Testament a prophet declares a word, and because people turn to God, get on their knees and pray and fast, and sometimes tear their robes as a symbol of their own sorrow and repentance, God relents. And it, almost, it seems like he changes his mind, but in a sovereign way, God uses contingency to drive us to our knees within the story that's about his glory. Think about when Isaiah goes into King Hezekiah. Everybody's like, what? Isaiah goes into King Hezekiah, and he's like, yeah, I know you're sick. You're going to die from this sickness. And it says, Hezekiah turned to the wall, and he goes, ah, Lord, may it not be so. And it says, before Isaiah walked out of the room, he turned around, and he goes, God heard that prayer. Actually, you're not going to die. And you're like, which one is it? The first word was supposed to drive the action that produced the second outcome. Some of you are here today, and the results of this word are that you would create a new future for your family, a new future for your story by relenting from the road that you were on and repenting and turning and going a different way. He goes, Nebuchadnezzar, if you turn and stop being like this, if you stop making it about you, if you stop being unkind to the poor, you never know. God might turn from his wrath and bless you, and your prosperity might continue. Even though there's moments in the Old Testament where people take God up on his word, and they repent and turn. That is not what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Read the very next verse. Daniel doesn't waste any time. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. So he got that warning. It was in place. All this ended up happening. Read the next line. Twelve months later. I circled that in my Bible. For a year after Daniel gave this word, nothing happened. So you got to believe that Nebuchadnezzar is living large and going, wasn't that a weird dream? And Daniel told me I'm going to lose my kingdom. Six months, seven months, eight months, nine months later, nothing. Ten months later, nothing. Do you want to know what that signifies? The patience of God. God gave every opportunity to turn and repent. But it also signifies a danger that we have, which is interpreting our standing with God based on our circumstances in the here and now. So I must be good because it didn't happen. Well, it might look good right now, but scripture is undefeated at this principle. You will reap what you sow. If you sow to please the flesh, you will reap destruction from sowing that. If you sow to please the Holy Spirit, you will reap eternal life. 
And I just want to call some of you today, not to scare you, but to sober you up, to wake you up, to go, God is speaking to you right now, and he is patient with you, and he is kind. But watch why God has to make a move. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar is drunk with power. He's on top of his palace, which we know from studies on ancient Babylon, that this is where monuments are in view, where a walkway that was lined with gold and idols to the gods of Babylon, loaded with people who have been conquered from Egypt, from Israel, from several different nations. I mean, he's looking out over this kingdom that he thinks he built. And his words are, is this not the great Babylon that I have built for the splendor of my majesty. This is like the apex, the absolute climax of pride. And it's in that moment that the word comes from God. King Nebuchadnezzar, it's over. You're out. And he becomes literally like an animal. And before you read a story in the Bible and you go, that doesn't ever really happen, this is actually something psychologists call lycanthropy, where human beings can believe that they are more at home living as animals. Now, even as you hear that right now, I can see on your faces, some of you are like, finally, UGA fans make sense. Like, this is, that is what happened to them. Had to, guys. Had to. Here's what was so great about yesterday. Yesterday was so great because as much as, as, much as we're enjoying blowing a lot of teams out, what was so great is you know, every UGA fan you know is texting their friends, we're about to beat Auburn. We're about to beat Auburn. We're about to beat it. It's like you give them enough hope to dash it. And it's like that was more enjoyable. Um, I liked it. And, and they have plenty to be happy about. They're national champs in football. But it was, it was a glorious day to be an Auburn Tiger yesterday. And yes, I did wait all week to make that joke. And I can't wait to make it three more times today. <laughs> all week. I was like, I can't wait. I'm going to every single service. We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about that. So he literally, in his mind, believes he's an animal, removes himself from his kingdom, and even physically starts to become like one. Go to verse 34. Let's finish it. At the end of that time, how long? Well, it says seven times will pass. That doesn't necessarily mean seven years. It means seven organized units of time. Could have meant seven weeks, seven months, but actually, when you, when you study this deeply, it did take seven years for this to happen for Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. If God can do that for the most arrogant king, he can do it for you. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. 
He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? That, that phrase, hold back his hand, is like a phrase that you would use for a father pulling back his kids. It's like, who is ever going to grab God's hand and yank him back into submission? No one. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amazing. Lifts his eyes toward heaven. Sanity is restored. And all of a sudden he starts proclaiming the truth that God set out to teach from the beginning. What is that truth? That the kingdoms of earth belong to the king of heaven big picture theological truth of Daniel 4 that we need to set in right now in the United States of America. Every single position of authority on this planet is not manipulated or gained by humans. It is given by the hand of God, including evil kings like Nebuchadnezzar or backward corrupt presidents or dictators, queens or princes or bosses. Every single authority. Now, now, when you and I hear that, we start to hesitate and go, wait a minute, what, what if they gained that authority through evil? Even their gaining that authority through evil can't happen outside of the sovereign hand of God. Every ruler on planet Earth only rules because there is one vote for their position. They did not get there in the grand story by manipulating their way to where they're going. And we're literally just coming out of an election where for the first time in our history, there are heavy charges of, that is what just happened, and people are losing their minds going, I can't believe that this is happening in our day. Here's the thing. No one has ever gained power outside of God holding that man or that woman in the palm of his hand. And as an American, that should make you rejoice in the one who's on the throne right now. Because it is not anyone in an office somewhere. And as our country literally, I'm sorry, loses its mind in some ways, it's good to know that even though we lose our minds like Nebuchadnezzar, the one who sits enthroned forever is perfectly sane, he's perfectly clear, and he will reign forever. You hold on to that as your comfort. That's what Jesus held on to. Remember Jesus before Pilate? When Jesus is talking to Pilate, Pilate's like, you're going to be silent? You know I have the power to take your life. And what does Jesus do? Calmly. Everything you have is a gift. Were it not from my Father's hand, you would not sit where you sit or stand where you stand. Here's, here's what a knowledge of the sovereignty of God does as it relates to power. It gives you peace even when you're being abused and maligned. It gives you peace even when you disagree, even when your life is taken. Because you go, at the end of the day, the one who's pulling the levers of this story is not sinful humanity. God reigns over the chaos. And God reigns despite rulers like King Nebuchadnezzar. You get to the end, and this is the key of the story. If it is a chiasm, Gage, this is probably the midpoint. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Why would that be the key point? Because that's the theme of the Bible. Read Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover through the scriptures. You will read this theme repeated over and over and over again. God humbles the prideful, but gives grace or exalts those who are bowed low in humility. 
There's an inverse relationship. When humanity boasts and takes pride and builds for self, God humiliates. When humanity bows and humbles themselves and submits to God, God exalts. And watch this. I don't believe that God just does that after the fact. I believe in any given moment in every area of your life. Where there is pride growing, there is a humiliation ongoing. And where there is humility being cultivated, there is an exalting. And a, what does 1 Peter 5 say? It says he lifts us up by his mighty hand. That God will lift you up in due time. Now, everybody look up here and don't miss this. This is a weird story. And I realized that reading a story about a narcissistic king who lost his mind and became an animal and then was restored to his kingdom once he gave glory to God might be something to have a few things to learn from, but what does this really have to do with my life? And that is where I would caution you, be very careful because you have a lot more in common with this story than you think you do. You may not be running around Auburn or wherever you live as an animal, but I believe the longer you go in this life, unaware and not acknowledging the glory of God, the more insane and less of yourself you will become. The longer you go, not letting the glory of God become the focus of your attention and the result of your praise, the more there will be a part of you, and I've noticed in my life, the more there's a part of me on the inside that starts to decay and become someone I'm not. You know, the longer I go unaware of God's glory and not acknowledging who he is, the more I become enslaved to my own sinful desires. The more I become someone to the people around me that I don't want to be, the more I feel myself kind of spinning out of control and going, I don't know why I'm so anxious. I don't know why I'm so stuck on this. I don't know what's really happening all around me. And I find that when the song of heaven gets stuck as a list of things on a sheet of paper instead of a song that I lift up to God, the more my soul decays and I'm deformed and not myself. The message today is this. What God wants to do in and through your life is always on the back end of being aware of and acknowledging the glory of God. And your neighbor, your spouse, your friend, your kids cannot do this for you. It has to be you learning how to take what God has entrusted to you and in humility, in submission, coming before him and calling him who he is, the king of the universe, and calling yourself who you are in humble submission to him. The message is humble yourself. The problem is in church for too long, we've made that message about a character trait called humility. And we've told people, be humble. Nobody likes an arrogant person. Nobody likes someone who's full of themselves. But do we even really know how to cultivate humility? It's like, well, okay, I, I need to think less of myself. I need to, I need to like say things against my God-given gifts that maybe I'll just give God credit for. I don't know. How do you humble yourself? Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Don't miss this. Humility is not a character trait you can develop. Humility is the byproduct of being in the presence of Jesus every single time. You can't work on humility. You can't become humble. Humble is what you are when you've been close to Jesus. Humble is how you walk away different from going, it was about me before I had that time with him, but now that that song has come off my lips and my eyes have seen who he is, now I walk back different. And I, I grew up in church constantly being told, you gotta humble yourself before God, you gotta humble yourself before God. And I literally got this ingrained in me at such a young age. I was in the eighth grade, and, and all this that I'm teaching right now is kind of rooted in the teachings of Pastor Louis Giglio, who talks about humility like this. He says, humility is not something that you can discipline yourself into. You gotta get in the presence of God, and that's how you become humble. So no joke, y'all. I, I have that framework for how I think about the Bible. No joke. I was reading Daniel 4. 
read through it, studied it, thought about it, and I was like, okay, it's about humbling yourself. I wasn't really thinking about all the details that I read, and I was like, I bet you. I, I, I don't even know if this was there from what I just read. I bet you there's a moment where Nebuchadnezzar sees a glimpse of God. I bet he sees something that changes things for him. And I literally anticipated that, turned the page, and I was like, yep, that's exactly what happened. Look at it, verse 34. At the end of that time, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, what? Raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Y'all feel this. This is the most arrogant, self-centered, violent man on the planet. He has been humiliated beyond measure. And one look, one glimpse into heaven, and all of a sudden, all sanity is restored. And he does what? He honors and glorifies the king of heaven. Y'all, that's not surface-level lip service. That's deep-level submission and acknowledgement of the one who's in control. Here's what I want to do today. I want to reframe the way you think about glorifying God. And I want it to become more than lip service that you put on the back end of your accomplishments or something that you say in passing to make, make sure you don't sound arrogant. I want to make it a deep, heart-level submission that lets God be God and you be a human being and get freed up. Here's how it happens. Write this down. Giving God the glory is not about giving him credit. It's about relinquishing our false sense of control. Write it down. Don't just read it. Think about those words. Giving God the glory is not about giving him credit. It's about relinquishing our false sense of control. So we've been trained to glorify God by doing things and then saying on the back end, it wasn't us, it was God. Or you get interviewed after a major event and what, what do you hear the guy say? And it's always a little bit like shallow to me, but it's like, it's like, how does it feel? You just won this. Well, we just want to give all the glory to God. He's the one. And it's like, well, that's so great to do, but we're talking about something so much deeper than a tip of lip service. That's like, I just want to give God the glory for the awesome thing I just did. It's about understanding that your very breaths, the moment you speak, are a gift from God. It's a humility that comes from everything I think I have control over and everything I think I have authority over, I don't. There is one ruling me. And when you get to this level of humble submission, you start to worship God with awe and wonder that awakens your senses for the supernatural and stirs your affection and love for God again. And when I'm sitting here praying before these services today, just breathing on this stage going, I, I'm not just like relying on God to give me the right words to come up here and lead you today. Like God had to open my eyes to wake up this morning. And if he didn't do that, he is right and just to do that. I'm unworthy of every breath I get on this planet. Every breath is a gift, every moment a treasure and every relationship an invitation. And you start doing this, what, what, what's happening to your spirit? You're replacing entitlement with gratitude. So yes, I think you should give glory to God for all your accomplishments. Yes, I, I think that's great. But we got to start thinking deeper than just saying the right thing to make it sound like it's not about you. we got to start getting in the presence of God long enough so our hearts and minds click and they're reminded it really is not about you. Because when you leave the presence of God, you leave with this peaceful sense of self-forgetfulness. It frees you to live this life the way you were called to live it. Here's what happens when Jesus is glorified and exalted. We are immediately aware of how unworthy we are. 
In your spare time this week, read the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll see all of these elements happen. Isaiah comes into the presence of God. God is high and exalted. The throne is being exalted. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does Isaiah say? He says, whoa, but not like, wow, that's awesome. Whoa, W-O-E, I'm finished. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. And then what is the very next thing that happens? Without Isaiah even asking for it, a seraphim flies over with coals and says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt and sin are atoned for and no more. You're welcome to be here. The presence of God puts us in awe of the fact that we are so sinful and he is so holy and set apart and different, but then immediately we're covered. But we're not covered with coals from a burning altar. We are covered with blood from the one who sits on the throne. How much more confidence do we have in the throne room? How much more reason do we have to give him praise? And so you go from feeling this desperation, humility of, whoa, if you don't give me my next breath, and you probably shouldn't with how sinful I am, I won't make it to, oh, when you see me, you see me so covered by the blood that I don't have to beg you to stay here. You want me to be here. You want me to be close to you. You want me to be drawn near to you. Now, all of a sudden, you're not walking away humiliated from the presence of God. You're walking away what? Confident. Because when we enter into the most holy place by the blood, we do so, Hebrews says, with confidence. That word confidence means with faith. Confide. What if you got the faith to believe? And to say out loud how much your life is not about you. And you made a regular practice and rhythm of getting aware of God's glory and acknowledging it out loud and turning over your perceived authority over everything in your life that's been placed under your authority. Y'all, I know this one's heavy. I got two quick points and we're done. Because I want you to be able to do this. I don't want this to be some far off ethereal description of what it looks like to be in the throne room of God. I want to teach you in the most practical way how to do this. Is this helping anybody? Point number one is this. There are only three words each. Number one, lift your eyes. What did King Nebuchadnezzar do? He raised his eyes. I don't believe that's necessarily literal. I think that's about focus. So we got all these Christian cliches about focus. The fight for your faith is the fight for your focus. You will become what you behold. And all these things that that basically mean what you look at will determine where you go. Although those are cliches that we say all too often, they're all true. You really do go where you're focused. And your life really is the result of where you place your eyes. And so the first step, what are we trying to do? We're trying to be aware and we're trying to acknowledge. Those are my two points. The first one's about awareness. The reason why you don't live your life like this and you can fall so easily back into a kingdom of self is because you're completely unaware of who the story is all about. And you need readily available reminders to grab your attention and put them back on God. And the reason why you need this, look up here, is because you are different when you see God. You are different in your family. You are different in every area of life that God's given you authority over. But you and I have been invited into an opportunity to see him and walk away glowing. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, we're not like Moses who when he got in the presence of God, he had to cover his face with a veil. Why? Because if anybody saw him after that 
they would have been afraid. No, we walk out of the presence of God with unveiled faces. In fact, I'm just going to read it to you. This is 2 Corinthians 3.16. Another 3.16. It's, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Bible's so good. Let's study this. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, beautiful, anyone, anyone, including Nebuchadnezzar, including an ISIS leader, including our president, including every single, every single human being, anyone who turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's something that happens when you get a fresh filling on the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk away glowing and be different. We all with unveiled faces contemplate, better word is reflect, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. You are transformed over time by having a willing commitment to enter into the presence of God and be changed by it. To have your affection stirred and your attention placed on the one who is on the throne. And the reason why I'm hitting this point so hard is because there are hundreds of you right now who I'm making eye contact with who have no plans of ever doing this for the rest of your life. And the first time you actually do this will be in the literal throne room when you die. You're going, this is like crazy worshipful Christianity. This is like for, for those people who clap mid-worship song. A lot of y'all are over here, and I love my little section over here. That's why I worship over here, because we got, we got like a little crew over here. Not that the rest of you are not in on it, but you're not. Um, now, watch everybody's going to try to sit over here next week. It's great. Um, what was I talking about? <laughs> yes, yes. Some of you, you'll go your entire life calling yourself a Christian, but this whole theme of getting in the presence of God and being changed by refocusing your attention on the one who's on the throne, it's like a foreign language to you. It's like something that other Christians do. I just want to invite you. Yes, it's weird. Yes, it's mysterious. The alternative is being miserable, living your life for you. Which one do you want? Do you want to be weird and get in the presence of God? Or do you want to be weird like Nebuchadnezzar, running around like an animal serving self? Which one? So what I'm saying is let's make it normal here to get weird. Let's make it normal to get alone with God and go, Jesus... Your throne room feels a million miles away from all my anxieties and fears right now. But here's what I've found. Every worry and anxiety that you bring into the presence of God gets, doesn't get taken care of. It feels different on the back end of being in the presence. Right now, my times before the Lord, I, sometimes I can barely get the words out. When 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, it, it feels like my soul is nauseated with all that I'm concerned about right now. And, and, and just to make it even more real, you know, we got, our, we got our third daughter on the way next month, so that's going to be three girls, five and under. Crazy amount of pressure. Yes, it is a blessing, and we need to say that first and foremost before we talk about the burden, but can we talk about the burden? And, um, and it's a lot. We, we've been married for 11 years, and those of you who have been married longer, you know that marriage is consistently a fight to prioritize one another and make sure that your marriage is a space where you're giving and receiving the love that God calls you to give and receive within a covenant. So that's always going to be a fight because that's the number one place the enemy is coming after me as a pastor, not to shut me up on Sundays, but to make me not pay attention Monday through Saturday to her. And so there's that fight. 
That's just at home. I'm working through a lot of generational stuff, and I've been very honest with that from the stage about discovering how much discipleship is about your family of origin and discovering things from my mom's side and my dad's side and working that out in real time and working out relationships and friendships that have ended and where there's unforgiveness and there's bitterness and there's people who I've disappointed. I have all of those things that you guys have. On top of that, the stresses of what we're getting into as a staff where this preaching on stage comes so natural to me. Structuring a church to care for thousands of people does not come as natural to me. And so I got to bring that before the Lord and go, God, empower me to do what is impossible for me to do and like bring me to a place of supernatural wisdom. And what you guys are doing in Birmingham is not helping my prayer time because it's awesome what God is doing. But even in my head, I'm like, oh, we, we, we're trying to figure out our staff here. What are we going to do out there? And, and there's all these people to care for and just know I'm bringing that before God. But here's the thing. It's not like getting before God makes all of those things supernaturally go away. But it's, there's something that the problems and the weight and the difficulty that seems so heavy, you walk away from lifting your eyes to heaven. And it's so light. I think this is part of what Jesus meant by my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he's like, I carry the heavy part. You just walk with me. And you get close enough to him. And all of a sudden, you're like, yeah, I, that time didn't change anything about those problems. But it changed me. And you're going to do what you're going to do on your time. What's your list of things that you bring before God? Yes, you should say them out loud, but you shouldn't just say that out loud. You should lift your eyes to heaven and speak out about the King of kings and Lord of lords and get your attention on the beginning of the Lord's prayer, which is what? Our Father in heaven. What? Hallowed be your name. Not our Father in heaven. Here's all the things I need you to do for me today. No, our Father in heaven. Hallowed, holy, worthy be your name. I'm in humble submission. Lift your eyes. That's number one. Number two. Waited all week for this one. Cast your crowns. Cast your crowns. Anybody remember casting crowns? <laughs> yep. I won a, uh, you remember that? I won a contest my senior year to win casting crowns tickets, and I was so excited. And I love them. And if, you're, if they're still around, you guys are awesome, and you built a foundation into a lot of people's faith. But I, I do think that the phrase, cast your crowns, is confusing to the average Christian. And it was confusing to me until I read about this this week. Y'all don't miss this. We think of casting our crowns before God as giving him our accomplishments. So we think about that scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 4 where the 24 elders cast their crowns before God. And we think of, yeah, when I get to heaven, I'm going to get a crown for, or a reward for everything I did. But I'm just going to turn over that reward to God. And while some of that language is helpful, when I was studying this passage this week, I don't think King Nebuchadnezzar was, was called to give back to God what he had accomplished. I think King Nebuchadnezzar was called to give back to God what was only a perception of authority that wasn't actually real. That what the elders are giving back to God is they are surrendering perceived authority. So the crown is not just a reward that you give back to God. It's everything God has entrusted to you that you care about. It's not just, hey, here's all that I've accomplished, but it's all for you, your glory. That's what I mean by it. It's not just about giving God credit. It's about, Lord, my crown is not a jewel that I will get when I get to heaven. My crown is Aniston. It's Elliot. It's y'all. 
It's things in my life that matter to me because the things that make you the most anxious and the things that make me the most anxious are the things that matter the most. So when Peter writes this, we gotta think about it differently. He said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. There it is, that's a quote from Proverbs 3. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Here's what it means to cast your crowns before God. It means to lay at the feet of God everything that matters to you, including your own life, and admit that you have no control or authority over any of it, and that that's a good thing. God, every ounce of authority I feel over what you've entrusted to me is just perceived. It's a gift from your hand. You could take it right back at any given moment you decide to. So before you do that, I just wanna take this off and admit She's yours. He's yours. It's yours. What, is, what are those things for you? And that's what we're going to do right now. Casting your crowns before God, maybe casting all your anxiety before God is not just, God, I'm worried about this and I'm concerned about this. Maybe it's, God, this is what matters the most to me right now. And in your prayer time, I know I'm going long and I feel like I do that every week now. But when you pray to God, God mostly wants to hear from you about what's really on your heart, about what's really bothering you, about what's really valuable to you. So I thought, man, y'all can go ahead and come up here so I don't go way too long. I thought, what if we just gave y'all a moment to do this? What if we turn this into as much of an altar as we can make it, and it's way too crowded in here for everybody to come down, but wherever you are, we wanna give you a moment to cast your crowns before God to go, God, this is everything I care about. This is everything that matters to me. So I'm not even going to close this sermon in prayer. They're gonna come up here and sing in just one second. I want to usher you in to go before God and lift your eyes and cast your crowns. Lay it before him and watch how the presence of God will leave us walking out of this space different than we walked in. Let's just watch God work and let's do this together.